How many of y'all are soda drinkers? You can admit. Soda drinkers in the room? Some of you? Eh? Just kind of? Okay. Okay. Um, well, if you're not, you should be. <laughs> no, not really. Um, it's probably bad for your health. Um, so I think it's been well documented that uh, I'm a Dr. Pepper drinker. Um, any other Dr. Pepper drinkers in the room? Oh, yeah. Good people. Good people. Um, so whenever I was younger, I was actually a Mountain Dew drinker. Um, I, I drank Mountain Dew all, all the time. And I, I haven't told a lot of people this, but the reason I drank Mountain Dew was because my oldest brother drank Mountain Dew. Um, and if any of you have older siblings, you know some, there, there's a part of you that wants to be like your older sibling. Um, so I wanted to be like my oldest brother, and please don't tell him that. Um, please. Um, so anyway, I wanted to be like my oldest brother. He drank Mountain Dew, so I drank Mountain Dew. But for some reason, as I got older, the Mountain Dew just didn't taste as good, and I started drinking Dr. Pepper. So, boy, I drink way too much Dr. Pepper now. So, um, I, like I said, I know there's a few of you in the room. I think it's been documented. As a matter of fact, I've had people show up before with a Dr. Pepper for me because they just, they know. They get it. Um, so... Um, but I remember whenever I was a kid, and you know, this is a little strange with my parents in the room, but I'm going to talk about them anyway. So um, when I was a kid, my, my parents, they, they tried to use their resources well. Um, they had to really because there were four boys in the house, so they really didn't have much of a choice. They had to use their resources well, and they would let their kids, we drank pop. So yeah, first of all, it, do you call it soda or do you call it pop? If you're a soda person, raise your hand. Do you call it soda? Okay, how many of you call it Pop. Oh, wow, we, uh, we are overwhelmingly pop people. Whew. I, I, now, wait, there's one other. How many of you call it Coke? Just ev- generically, it's Coke. Okay, we're not far enough south then. Okay. So, yeah, it was the weirdest thing. Whenever we, we were at the seminary in Texas, like whenever we spent time there, uh, somebody said, well, you want to get me a Coke? I'm like, yeah, so you just want a Coke. They said, no, I want a Dr. Pepper. Like, you said you wanted a Coke. What, what are you talking? Anyway, you guys don't care. Okay, so... Um, there were four boys in the house. We had pop, and uh, sometimes we may have drank more than we were supposed to, but we were given limits. We were told, be reasonable about what you're drinking, because, you know, you don't need to go have, like, 15 cans of pop a day. Uh, but my parents, they, they would provide soda for us. But because there were four of us, you can imagine, sometimes that gets expensive. You know, you're buying pop, and you got these, you might earmuff it, we got these idiot teenage boys running around. Um, no offense. Sorry, guys. Um, I love y'all. So anyway, we were running around. We might have had more than we were supposed to, but again, trying to be reasonable. There were a few times that this stuff back here showed up instead of the other. Okay, now you all familiar with these? You guys know what these are, right? Mountain Lightning, Dr. Thunder. Does y'all ever bought these? How many of you have bought these before? How many of you like them more than the real stuff? No, you're lying. Oh, goodness. Of course it'd be you. Well, where would, okay, so occasionally this stuff would show up, the mountain lightning, the doctor thunder, it would show up, and I get it, they were trying to save some, save a few bucks, you know, there were just four boys running around drinking way too much, so they were trying to save a few dollars, and now as a father of four myself, I mean, I get it, now, my, don't get me wrong, we're not giving soda to, to our infant child, but uh, I get it, some of my kids, they, they drink pop occasionally, and I see how it could get expensive real quick, okay, so I, I understand, especially since Alan, as he pointed out, I'm not making Aaron Judge money, so it, things could could get tight pretty quick. And by the way, you said remove a couple zeros. It might be more than a couple zeros, um, just to make that clear. But you know 
that it, Mountain Lightning and Dr. Thunder, they're just not the same, are they? Um, we go to Minnesota about every year, and up in Minnesota, they don't ha- there's some restaurants, they don't have Dr. Pepper either. They have Doc 360. You all familiar with Doc 360? It's just not the same, by the way. Um, it's, it's close. It imitates the real thing, but it's just not quite the same. See, they may look similar. They may even have certain qualities about their taste that are similar, but there's something about them that just isn't the same. And whenever you've had the real thing, you know it's just not the same. See, today what we're going to dive into is that there are certain aspects of redemption that must be true, or it's kind of like drinking the off-brand. It's kind of like drinking something else that promises to be the same. It looks similar on the outside at first. It might even have some similar qualities about its taste, but it's just not the same. And that's what we're going to dive into today. Um, There are some who are going to be say that they have redemption, but it doesn't meet these standards. Um, I'm sorry, but if it doesn't meet these standards, it's not true redemption. There are certain things that are necessarily true about redemption. Or there are going to be some who settle, like we talked about last week, for knowing of Jesus, knowing of their Redeemer, without actually knowing Him. And because they don't actually know Him, they might settle for something that looks like a true Redeemer, but it's not the same. But what we're going to see today is that redemption, true, complete redemption, it has a particular flavor has a particular flavor to it, and it involves these certain distinctives. Anything else that is just close to the same thing, it's not good enough. It's not the real thing, and it's not worth your time. So that's what I want to look at today as we finish up this book of Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 4. So would you all stand with me? Let's read God's word together. Um, Ruth chapter 4 will be our text for the day. I'll be beginning beginning in verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says... Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property, so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. 
all the people who were at the city gate, including the elder, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this woman, by this young woman. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, "Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel." He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashan, Nashan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, as we we turn our attention to this word, as we, we look at this message that you've preserved for us. Um, Father, I just pray that you would show us something about who you are um, or that you would show us what true redemption looks like because we can see the true redeemer. Father, and I pray that we wouldn't settle for something that promises to be like what you've done, but instead we would want nothing but you. Lord, I just pray that you would guide us, uh, teach us, and help us to live more faithfully as a result of your word today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ruth chapter 4. What I want us to see are these four distinctives, these four distinct qualities of true redemption. That's what I want us to see today. First, true redemption necessitates union. True redemption necessitates union. Verse 1, Boaz goes to the gate of the town and he sits down. Okay. Now, this is important whenever he goes to the city gate. The city gate is kind of, like, uh, kind of like the town hall. It's where all the business of the town was done. So, prominent men would show up at the city gate in order to conduct these town-wide business meetings. And here, Boaz, going to the city gate, basically is signifying, hey, I've got business that needs to get done. So, he goes to the city hall, and he sits down here at the gate, and he's ready to do what he needs to do. Then, verse 1 goes on, it says, Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Now, again, I love this because, it, it, in the, especially in the Hebrew, but also in English, you get this picture where, well, here's Boaz at the city gate, and the family, this closer redeemer, just happens to come by. Here he comes, strolling down the road. Okay, I love the way that the author of Ruth mixes this idea of random chance with God's or, like God orchestrating everything. Because we know, was this random chance? No, of course not. God knew exactly where he needed to be and when he needed to be there. So here comes this closer redeemer as God is orchestrating these events. And at the end of verse 1, Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Verse 2, then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. So let's just pause for a moment and get this scene. Okay, Boaz, 
Boaz has this closer redeemer that we talked about last week, right? So as, as Ruth, Ruth laid down at Boaz's feet and basically proposed to Boaz, as this is all taking place, Boaz says, well, I would love to redeem the property, but there is a closer redeemer. I'll take care of it tomorrow. So lay down, go to sleep, and this is the closer redeemer that Boaz was talking about. Here he comes strolling by. So Boaz has this closer redeemer. Now he goes around this town of Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, and he finds ten more witnesses. Right? So he goes and finds ten more people, brings them to the city gate, has them sit down. Now, it's also important these are elders of the town. These are men of standing. These are probably older men. That's why they're called Elder, y'all tracking with that? See how that works? Uh huh. So these are probably older men, probably men of prominence that Boaz goes and finds and brings to the city gate so they can conduct business in the, in the town. So he goes and finds these men of standing and brings them to the gate. Now, for just a moment, <laughs> I, I, this is how my mind works. If you're this unnamed redeemer, what in the world is going through your head right now? Like, you're sitting here, Boaz, just ha- you just, you're, go- you're minding your own business, you're going down the street, you come by the city gate, and Boaz says, hey, come over here for a minute. Hey, just go ahead and find a seat. And then he goes and finds these other ten prominent men with, of reputation, and he brings them around, and you're sitting here looking at these guys. Because, remember, this is Bethlehem, a thousand people maybe. So, smaller town, everybody knows everybody, like, you walk down the street, you know the, you know the people. And now these ten prominent men in your town, they're all sitting around looking at you too. Just what in the world are you thinking if you're this guy? Like, what did I do? What's happening right now? Verse 3, Boaz gets to the point. Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. So, Naomi's going to sell off what belonged to her deceased husband. She, she needs a way to provide for herself and for Ruth. So this portion of the land, she can make a little bit of money off of it. So that way they can provide for themselves. So she's going to sell off the land so that she can survive, so that Ruth can survive. Now, it probably seems like a great deal to this redeemer. Because think about this for just a moment. He's wanting to buy a piece of land that he can farm, right? Landowner himself. And typically, this piece of ground that would be sold could and likely would be redeemed at some point by the offspring of the previous owner. It would revert back to the previous owner's family. Now, think about how great of a deal this seems to this closer redeemer, though. Okay? This piece of ground that he could buy and he could basically rent until the, the dead man's children are old enough to take the property themselves. Well, there are no children. So he buys this ground. Basically, what he's doing is he's buying a piece of ground that he's going to own for the rest of his life and pass on to his kids. This is a great deal for this guy. He's going to pay to farm this ground and keep the ground. Like, how many of you would like to do that? I'm going to cash rent this ground, and I'm just going to keep the ground forever. Huh. Yeah, some of you are thinking, that's a, good, that's a good plan. So, seemed like a good deal to this guy. Typically, it would have gone back to Elimelech's kids, but remember, Elimelech died in Moab. So did his boys. So, by farming this ground, by owning this ground, it belongs to him. If he redeems this ground, it's his and his family's forever. But then in the middle of, the middle of verse 4, we get this, this but. Okay, We get this, this, this word, but. He says, but if you do not want to redeem it, Tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So Boaz, sitting here with these ten prominent men, looking around him and this other redeemer, they're sitting there, and he says, if you want to redeem this land, do it already. If you want it, buy it. Take it. But if you don't, just tell me so that I can go get it. I want the land too. 
So tell me, if you don't want it, I do. At the end of verse 4, this closer redeemer, he says, I want to redeem it. Clearly, this man sees an opportunity, and he wants to take the ground. Who could blame him? He wants to farm the ground. He wants to increase what he has. So, he sees the opportunity, he's going to snatch it up. Verse 5, Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. So this closer redeemer says, I want the land. But then Boaz kind of throws a curveball at him. Right? Now, we're going to get off into the weeds here for just a minute, and I hope you all are good with that. Um, because I'm going to do it whether you want to or not. So, there you go. Um, so, we're going to get off in the weeds here. All right, he says, if you buy this land, you also get Ruth. Now, there's, there's something interesting that happens there, though. Okay, if we were to go back and we were to look at what it means whenever he says, you will acquire, you will acquire, that Hebrew verb that says you will acquire is not in the second person, which I found interesting. He doesn't say you will acquire. Actually, that Hebrew verb, in, you go back to the Hebrew language, it's in the first person, which I found fascinating. Okay, so really what he says here, instead of saying you will acquire, now I'm not real smart, but I know first person, second person, third person. You all familiar with with those, right? First person would be I, second person would be you, third person would be he or she, right? You all tracking with that? Okay, this verb in Hebrew is in the first person. So really, if we were just going to look at this and give a literal translation of what this says, he says, on the day that you buy that field from Naomi, I will acquire Ruth the Moabitess. Now, most English translations, for whatever reason, do translate this as you. But there are a few that say, I will acquire Ruth, the Moabitess. Now, why does that matter? Why did I go off into the weeds like this? Well, this is, this is actually really important, okay? Because, to the best of my knowledge, the concepts of leveret marriage, where um, if a man dies, then his brother would take his wife and raise up offspring for his deceased brother. So that concept was not tied to the idea of the kinsman redeemer. They were not necessarily tied. So to the best of my knowledge, those were not the same thing. Those are separate concepts. Okay? Now, if that's true, then this widow has no one to perpetuate her her deceased husband's family line. And this closer redeemer does not necessarily have to marry her. Okay? Now, that's significant because of this. If... If we understand this to mean that Boaz intends to marry Ruth and raise up children for her deceased husband, whether this man buys the field or not, there's a problem for this closer redeemer, isn't there? Uh Uh-oh. So this man just made his character known. He said, I want the field. I don't want the Moabitess. Regardless of whether you see this as I or you, he makes that clear. I don't want that foreign woman. I want the land. Now, Boaz, however, plans to redeem or plans to marry Ruth and raise up children for her deceased husband, for Elimelech, for that family, which creates a problem, right? Because now, if that happens, this man buys the field, but there's an heir to that field who will someday own that property. So this man may be purchasing the field, but it's just until this child grows up to where he's old enough to redeem the field himself. So this man has basically just paid for a field that he's going to have to give back to somebody else. You see the problem? Y'all tracking with that? 
So then we get to verse 6, and this unnamed redeemer, he sees the problem himself, and he says, well, I don't want to just throw money away because that's going to waste my inheritance. So the unnamed redeemer forfeits his right to redemption. Verses 7 and 8, we get this, this fun symbolic gesture, right? This, this guy takes off his sandal, and everybody says, put your shoes back on, dude. Um, so he takes off his sandal, and he gives it to Boaz, and this is likely to signify that this man is giving up his right to walk on that ground. Right, He takes off the sandal, gives it to Boaz, says, I don't have a right to set foot on that property. It's yours. Do what you want with it. So he tells Boaz, buy back the property yourself. And now think about the point here. Think about the point here. Our Redeemer, or, or one Redeemer, let's say it that way, one Redeemer, if he could actually be called a Redeemer because he doesn't really redeem anything, okay, this closer Redeemer, he only wanted personal gain from the redeemed. He was interested in what he could gain from the one being redeemed, from what was being redeemed. He wanted the field, and he admitted he did, right? He said, I want it. I'm going to get it. But see, he wasn't willing to sacrifice anything, nor did he have a desire for Ruth. Now, that stands in stark contrast with Boaz, because Boaz, it seems, wanted Ruth even if he gained nothing. Even if he had to sacrifice everything. He wanted Ruth. And by redeeming the property, right, he, he is sacrificing, isn't he? He's paying for something that's going to be left to what is legally somebody else's child. He's raising up children for a Limelech's line, not for his line. So by saying, yeah, I want to redeem her, I want to, I want to marry her, and I want to redeem this property, what he's saying is I'm going to buy this field from her so that she can live now, and I'm going to marry Ruth, and it's going to go to somebody else's children. Like, that's what he's saying. He says, I want to sacrifice everything so that I can have her. I want Ruth. <laughs> so one was interested in his personal gain, and the other was interested only in gaining Ruth. Okay, that brings us to the point here, and that's this. It's okay. Our Redeemer doesn't want the stuff that you can offer him. I'm going to say that again because this is really important. Our Redeemer doesn't want the stuff that you can offer him. See, whenever we start talking about Jesus, he doesn't want you, he doesn't want to redeem you because you can do this for him or you can do that for him. He doesn't want you because of what you have to offer. Now that stands in stark contrast with every other thing that promises to buy you back, every other thing that promises to provide you happiness, every other thing that promises to give you something in return. Every other thing wants something from you. Not Jesus. Let me make this as clear as I can. We oftentimes think about the Christian faith, and, and I've, I'm gonna, I'm, this is kind of touchy, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so we, we sometimes, I know I've heard, especially at funerals, like, like people say, well, this person died, and it was because God needed them more than we did. No, we didn't. The truth is, the truth of the Bible is, God doesn't need you. Like, I, I hate to, like, hurt your feelings if that's what's happened, but God doesn't need you. Like, you're special, but you're not that special. <laughs> Y'all tracking with that? Like, God doesn't need you. We just talked about the Trinity the last couple of weeks at Sunday school, and the truth is, like, God existed eternally and perfectly in perfect relation with himself. He doesn't need us. Like, we start thinking, well, God needs somebody to worship him. No, he doesn't. God was perfect from eternity past. He doesn't need us. God created us because he loves us. 
Because he wanted to, not because he somehow needs us. And we think, well, God needs our prayers because he needs somebody to talk to. I bet eternity's lonely without people to talk to. God had the Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally, so no, God doesn't need us. That's just the truth. Like, we oftentimes think, well, whenever we come to, to come to Christ, well, it's because we had this quality to offer, or we could reach that group, or we could talk to this person, or we could do this or that. God doesn't need the stuff that you can offer him. He doesn't need it. Keep in mind, this is the same God that we're talking about who spoke. And guess what? That's everything came into existence. God doesn't need you to talk to somebody. God doesn't need you for anything. That's just true. And again, if that hurts your feelings or makes you feel bad, I, don't, I really don't care because that's just true. God doesn't need you. The thing about it is, though, he wants you. Not because of anything that you have to offer, but because he loves you. Just like, just like here, we see Boaz pursuing Ruth. Despite the fact he was going to have to sacrifice an awful lot to obtain her. To go get her. He wanted her. Not because of anything she could offer. But because he wanted her. You see how that works? It's not because of us. It's because of him. He is good. He is loving. He is kind. And for that reason, he pursued us. What we need to realize is that redemption is more than just a legal transaction. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there's enough language in the Bible that uses the terms of legal transaction that you can frame it that way if you want to. That's perfectly good and perfectly true. But salvation, redemption, according to the Bible, is about knowing the Redeemer, about being with the Redeemer, about being united with the Redeemer. And this picture of marriage is perfect. This, this, relational, uh, this relational aspect that supersedes everything else, that's what God wants from you. Not because you can provide something for Him, but because He loves you and He wants you. That's what the Redeemer does. True redemption is not about what you can offer. True redemption is about union with the Redeemer. It necessitates this union. So anything that promises to give you something, if you could give it in return, give it, give it something back, it's not real redemption. Okay, True redemption necessitates union. Second, true redemption involves community. True redemption, it involves community. Verse 9, Boaz, he turns and he says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Now Boaz, Boaz is a smart guy. Boaz isn't a dummy because he gathered witnesses so that they could oversee this redemption of property, okay? So, we think about this, and the other, redeem, the other redeemer, um, he had a claim on the land. He could have claimed the land, but he gave that up. He had no claim on Ruth any longer. He had no claim on the land. Now, could Boaz have just gone to this unnamed redeemer? Could he have just gone to him and worked things out privately? I suspect he could have. I suspect he could have. But instead, Boaz involves the community. He involves the community, both for safety and accountability. In verse 10, Boaz says, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's wife, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property. In other words, I'm going to marry Ruth, and the sons that I have through her will be Malon's heirs and rightful owners of this property. Anything that belongs to Elimelech passes to this son that Ruth will have. Now, what we learned of Boaz in chapter 2 has become even more clear here. Because if you think back to chapter 2, we saw that Boaz was a prominent man of noble character. Not only does he have the means to purchase back this land, but he also has the character to pursue Ruth. 
Okay, so we find that he is, in fact, a noble or a prominent man of noble character. And all the people gathered at the city gate. They acknowledge that they are witnesses, and then they give this awesome blessing to Boaz and by connection to Ruth. So, in verse eleven, the last part of verse eleven, it says, "May the Lord make this the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Ta- the son Tamar, born to Judah." Because of the offspring, the Lord will give you by this young woman. What these people are saying is, we want her to be fertile. I mean, just to simplify it. That's what they want. Okay. Now, that's for a good reason, though. Because if we think about the society, she needed a son. She needed an heir. Because Boaz, even Boaz isn't going to be around forever. And we get hints throughout the text that he's an older man already. She needs a son to actually carry this property and to care for her in her old age. She needs a son. So they say, may she have sons. And because of Boaz's character, they want his name to be remembered in Bethlehem forever. Like, let his name be known. Now, little did Boaz or these people giving this blessing know that we'd still be talking about him a few thousand years later. Now, think about that whenever you bless somebody or say, man, I hope that you're known forever. Like, think about that next time, okay? Yeah, a few thousand years later. But what in the world does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? Um, see, the truth is that God doesn't need anyone to confirm his redemption. Like, he redeems someone. Nobody, he doesn't need anybody to confirm that. He's God. And again, Sunday school, we just talked about there's no higher authority than God. So you swear something by God. It's like, if God swears something by God, it's going to happen. God cannot lie, okay? So, God doesn't need anybody to confirm his redemption. However... He's, I believe he's allowed us as the church to be a part of the process. Just in his grace, he's allowed us as the church to be a part of the process. And I believe that it's a great privilege to be able to stand alongside those who are redeemed and encourage and bless them, to be a blessing to them. Look, whenever you experience God's work in your life, I, I want to urge you to let the body, the, like the, commu- the church, I want, I want you to let the church come alongside you and celebrate God's goodness with you. That's what these people did. They were gathered around both as witnesses, but also just to bless them, like to bless Boaz. So yeah, they, I want you to, get, to come and like, let us gather around you as a church, as a body, as the people of God, and encourage you and to bless you. I hope that we can be that th- for you. Um, and I think about this in a couple different ways. We do this in, in a few ways here. There's always this, this fun part that is uh, this baptism, right? This public declaration that you belong to Christ. And I hope that you want the church to come alongside you and say, yeah, we see the fruit of redemption in their life and we want to encourage and support them. Yeah, I hope that we can do that as a church. But also in membership. That's another way that we do this, where we come together and we say we're going to link arms and we're going to do the work that God sets before us. Not because he needs the work that we're doing, but because he's gracious enough to let us join him in his work. So yeah, let's identify with the body so that we can encourage one another, so that we can bless one another. So redemption, while it certainly has some private aspects, it is not an exclusively private thing. It involves the community. It involves the church. Like we are a body of believers. We come together as the people of God, as the redeemed. That's what we're supposed to be. So true redemption, it doesn't leave you isolated by yourself, but instead it involves the community. And we see that play out here too. So true redemption necessitates union. It involves the community. Third, true redemption results in life. 
True redemption results in life. And my, my projector is not functioning, so just, yeah, we're going to get by, okay? So true redemption, involve, it results in life. Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. Now, this is only the second time in the entire book of Ruth that the narrator himself ascribes any kind of activity to God, and here, he's granting conception. So again, another positive thing that God does here. And... Ruth has a son. And this son, who does he belong to? Belongs to Malon or, or Elimelech. It's his heir. That's who this one is for. I mean, and Boaz made that abundantly clear in the very beginning. Like, I want to raise up children for Elimelech, for Malon. Like, I want that family line to continue. So, she has a son. It is Elimelech's heir. <coughs> and this is a tremendous blessing for both Ruth and Naomi because they now have security and they now have a legacy. They now have security and a legacy. Verse 14, something interesting again happens. The women start talking again. Um, The women of the town, they start talking specifically about Naomi again. Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 19, there all the women start talking about Naomi also. But there it's talking about, oh, Naomi's, is this really Naomi who's back after 10 years in this pagan land bringing along this girl who nobody wants to be associated with? Oh, by the way, her husband married one of those undesirable, or her sons married one of those undesirable girls over there. That's what they were talking about back in chapter 1, verse 19. But now, now in verse 14, they're saying, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. You hear how the tone has changed. As a result of this child, whose name, uh, as a result of this child, whose name is to become well known? Okay? It says, may his name become well known. Now, who is he there? Now, is this the Redeemer or is it the Lord? Which I think is another one of these interesting things we ran into a couple weeks ago. If you remember, there was some ambiguity in the text. Some, so it was kind of vague and it didn't really tell us which one it was. And I think there's a reason for that. It's because whoever wrote the book of Ruth is a literary genius. Um, and really, I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. I believe it's intentional. May, may his name become well known in Israel. Well, I think it's the Redeemer and the Lord. May his name become well known. May the Lord's name be known as great because this Redeemer has shown up. May God get the credit for this. But I, something else I thought was interesting is as I was reading through this, the first time I read it, I thought, okay, well, they're talking about Boaz, this family Redeemer. But as we continue, we find that that's not the case. So let's go on. Verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Okay. Ruth did not give birth to Boaz. They're not talking about Boaz here. Instead, the child is the redeemer that they're thankful for. That these women are blessing God for. He has an opportunity to care for Naomi for the rest of her life and Ruth for the rest of her life, and he will be the one who carries on the family legacy. See, this Redeemer has shifted here. Where we thought it was Boaz all along, the Redeemer that they were looking for is this child that's going to be named Obed. He's the Redeemer that they're looking for now. They find redemption in this child. And we see that because of Ruth's faithfulness, her her hesed, this word that we've talked about several times throughout this series in Ruth, this hesed, her loving kindness, because of her faithfulness, she is better than seven sons. Now think about that statement. 
You guys, we've talked enough about what sons meant in this time, especially in this time. And now these women around town are saying, man, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. What a statement. Verse 16, Naomi took the child and placed him on her lap and became a mother to him or a nanny to him, depending on your translation. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, Naomi, Naomi, who was left empty, this woman who was left empty, she now has hope. She has a future because of this heir. And she has an heir for Elimelech. Okay, what she lost because of her unfaithfulness by running away, she gained through the faithfulness of Ruth and her Redeemer. She gained everything that was lost. Now, what I love is that here at the end of this book, she is still being known as Naomi. Because even whenever she came back and she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, don't call me pleasant, don't call me sweet, call me Mara, call me bitterness. That's not her. She's not bitter anymore. That bitterness has never really taken hold. Instead, what we see is she is Naomi. She is pleasant and she is sweet. Again, Naomi was stuck in death and destruction in the very beginning of this book. And now by the end of it, because of her Redeemer, she has life. She has hope. Man, was everything going to be perfect from here on for her? Of course not. Y'all know we live in a sinful and a broken world. Like, that's just a fact. We do. But her hope was restored because of Ruth, because of Boaz, and because of this child. Now she has life. She's still Naomi because of the good things that God has brought, because of the true redemption that God has brought. See, a lot of times we say we have true redemption, but we live like we have no life. And I think that's, that, that has multiple parts. Um, and I don't want you to start questioning your faith or questioning whether you really believe. That's not my goal. Uh, My goal here is to tell you that you can experience life, like true life, have true joy. We see it here from this woman who came back empty, had no hope. She was was done. She said, don't even call me by my real name. Like, call me bitterness. And now she has joy. And all the women around town who were once saying, can this really be Naomi? They're saying, man, she's so blessed. The same woman. Why? Because God was faithful. Because she found a redeemer. And that true redemption, that true redemption resulted in life for Naomi. True redemption necessitates union, involves community, results in life. Fourth, true redemption comes through Jesus. I hope you all saw this one coming because I don't really want to be sneaky about telling you about Jesus. Um, That's where true redemption comes from. The very end of this book. At the very end of this book of this route, there's this funny little 10-generation genealogy here. And we're given the family records of, of Perez, which should take us back to verse 12, where they're, giving this, they're given this blessing and say, uh, may they be fruitful like this, and talking about the fertility and saying, hopefully she has, wait, we pray that she would have sons. And here, we get this family line of Perez. Um, and just like Tamar was blessed with a son, which resulted in a long family legacy, so now they're blessing Ruth and Naomi and saying, you've been blessed a lot in the same way, so we're going to pour out this blessing. And here's this, gener- here's this genealogy. I'm just going to read through it really fast, and we'll get to the point. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, why is this so important? Why, are, why was this plugged in here at the end of the book of Ruth? Well, Think about who we're talking about here. Think about who we've been following through this book of Ruth. 
Um, we've been talking about the actions of Naomi. This bitter, angry woman who came back had no hope, and she said that she was angry, and she said that she was mad at God. She said that she was bitter. So think about Naomi. Think about Ruth, um, how she was an outcast, how she was unacceptable according to society. She was a mark of, of this family's sin and shame, and she came back, and that's who this woman was. So think about Ruth, think about Naomi, and think about Boaz. Even though he may not have been the most likely candidate, which, by the way, he acknowledges, he says, you could have chased after a younger man, but you came to me. Like, he's not even the closest redeemer here. There could have been somebody else. He was not the most likely candidate. So why is this genealogy so important? Well, God used them. God used these unlikely broken people. He used them to bring about the king of Israel. The man after God's own heart. Did you hear who that ended with? David. Y'all know who David is, right? Y'all know who David is? He's the man who made plans to build God's temple. He's the man who unified the nation of Israel. David, who is probably the greatest king the nation of Israel would ever know. That David, he's found right here at the end of this genealogy. Like this man's action, Boaz's actions, despite the fact he wasn't the most likely candidate, led to David. Ruth, even though she was probably the most unlikely candidate, this foreign woman who shouldn't have had anything to do with the nation of Israel, she was used to bring about the king David. Naomi, this bitter woman who didn't want anything to do with God, she was mad at God. She comes back, and by the way, she's seen here in the lineage of King David. Okay. But probably more important than any of that is that everything about this book, down to this final genealogy, it points us forward. It points us forward to an even greater king. I mean, it really points us forward to Jesus. See, these same names, by the way, they show up again later on in the Bible. Um, and if you're familiar with Matthew or Luke, for that matter, you're going to find these same names listed in the genealogies they give when looking forward to Jesus. These same people. See, true redemption, it comes through Jesus. See, the whole book of Ruth, it foreshadows a redeemer. It foreshadows a groom, a husband. It foreshadows a king, and really the one that we all need. It points us forward to our true redemption. It shows us that while we were only foreigners to the promise who knew nothing but death and destruction, there was a redeemer that we knew nothing of. There was a redeemer who we were not pursuing. But despite our lack of anything good, the redeemer noticed us. The redeemer noticed us. And that redeemer wasn't concerned about what he could gain from you. <laughs> he didn't care what he could gain from you. He had everything he already needed. He didn't need anything from you, but he wanted you anyway. He wanted to know us, to be with us, to know us, and for us to know him. Like, that's what he wanted. So he pursued us to bring us into a union, into a real relationship with him that surpasses all other relationships. It supersedes every other relationship we have. That's the picture of marriage, right? So he wanted that from us. He wanted to marry us. So he pursued us. And that redemption, the true redemption, it comes from the true redeemers and it brings life. It brings life. And just so you know, if you start reading through the Bible, where is life found? It's found nowhere but Jesus. It's only found in him. Um, his disciples would say, Lord, where, where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else are you going to go? True redemption 
comes from Jesus. So today, today, what do we do with this? If you don't know the Redeemer, if you don't know that Redeemer, then we as the community, we as the church, we want to come alongside you and we want to be a blessing to you to be witnesses as the Redeemer purchases you, as he buys you back. That's what we want. We just want to be here to be with you. We want to support you as you're baptized into Christ, as you link arms and membership. We just want to be with you and support you in any way that we can. We want to be a blessing to you. And if you are already in Christ, then remember that the only reason you have life is because he loved you and he pursued you. Not because you were good enough. See, oftentimes I know I'm guilty of this, thinking I'm pretty good. Y'all know me. My wife jokes about my ego, but then she quickly deflates it. Um, No, not really. She's certainly a source of encouragement. So please, I'm just teasing. Look, God didn't pursue us because we were good enough or because we had something to offer, but because he loved you. And a lot of times as the church, I think we, we lose sight of that. And we start thinking about the things that we have to do, the stuff that God needs us to do. God didn't come and do that. Certainly there are things that we should do. Yeah, I'm not saying that there's not. I'm not saying don't do work because the Bible, go read the book of James. Yeah, work. Why? Because God loved us already. But the important thing is God doesn't need that for you. He wants you. He wants to know you deeply and intimately. So let that drive you to forgiveness. Let that drive you to love. Let that drive you to fellowship with those who are in Christ. But after all this, the most important thing I want you to remember is that this whole book and really our lives, they're about the true Redeemer. It's all about Jesus. And that's what we need to remember today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, you are so good that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Um, Lord, that should, in our ears, that should ring with the truth that we just looked at here from Ruth. Um, Lord, this, this truth that we had nothing to offer you, but you pursued us because you loved us. Uh, Father, so just remind us of the great love that you have for us. And Father, I pray that that would change our hearts so that we want to love those around us, so that we want to care for people's needs, um, so that we can be there and we can, uh, we can be your hands and feet. Lord, just like you've commanded us to. Um, Lord, so I just pray that, that we would know you more and that that would change the way that we live as followers of Christ. Um, Father, I, above all, I just want to thank you for loving us, uh, for laying everything down for us, and for being raised for our justification. Um, God, we just praise you today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.